Okay, good evening, everybody. Okay, so let's visualize in the space in front of us the merit field, all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, lineage lamas, all the different holy beings. So one nice practice to do when you don't know what to do is to practice looking at other living beings, whether they're human or animals or insects. And each time you you look at them, thinking, "Uh, you've been kind to me. And so... That opens the mind to think of past lives and the fact that we have connection with every living being. We're not isolated units, unconnected to others. We're very connected. And everyone has been kind and to others, and everybody has been the recipient of kindness, too. So it's important to remember that, that we've been the recipient of kindness. And when we practice feeling like the recipient of kindness, then it becomes very easy to be kind to others. And it enables us to have a happy mind, whoever we're with and whatever we're doing. So instead of holding on to grudges, instead of remembering all sorts of things we don't like and ruminating about them, steer the mind in a positive direction that makes it easy to generate compassion for others. and makes it easy to aspire for awakening for their benefit. So in your own mind, give a uh, an amnesty to 
all the living beings and release all grudges and all resentment. And then as you do that, feel the happiness, the lightness that comes in your own heart and recognize that that is a contribution to peace in this world. So it's interesting, you know, how we will hold grudges about things. And uh, I was thinking about this the other day, that sometimes it's the last interaction that we had with somebody. You know, if it didn't, if it was something a little crinkly in it, then we hold on to that. Or maybe the last interaction wasn't so bad, but something before we didn't like, and then we hold on to that. And so we just, uh, yeah, we hold on to bad feelings about other people. And for what purpose? Yeah. Is it, we say, that's my revenge. Yeah, I'm going to not like them. That's how I'm going to take my revenge. Probably doesn't matter to them much. Makes you pretty miserable. So I think this whole idea of... uh, It's a funny way to put it, but we give amnesty to everybody who we think has ever harmed us. Notice I did not say to everybody who has harmed us, because a lot of the people haven't harmed us, but we think they have harmed us. And so we hold resentment against them because of our thought, not because of what they've done. Yeah. So to have be like magnanimous mouse and... Uh, have a magnanimous attitude towards others and how it actually turns around and helps us. Okay, so I thought we had gotten further last week, but it looks like we didn't. So we're still on page 246. Really? I didn't get further than that last time? Hmm. Okay, so it's point 10. Yeah, dispassion is the proximate cause for liberation. So we've been going through the transcendental dependent arising as it's taught in the Pali tradition. Okay, and so 
the previous one was enchantment is the proximate cause for dis- disenchantment is the proximate cause for dispassion. So we have a lot of pleasure with uh, with samsara, and then we get thoroughly disenchanted with it because we see it doesn't bring any lasting happiness, and it only generates more and more confusion. So that becomes the cause for dispassion. And uh, dispassion is the first of these 11 points of the transcendental uh, dependent origination, which is an actual Arya path that is actually trans, uh, transcendental. Okay, so, you know, dispassion you, is like samsara, I could care less. Yeah. And then that gives, takes a lot of distraction away from the mind. So then the concentration can get very deep and penetrate and realize nirvana. So nirvana is the object of the path consciousness, you know, and realizing nirvana helps to purify the mind. So the Pali tradition does not say, oh, nirvana is emptiness. But it kind of sounds like that, almost. And the Sanskrit tradition does say that. Okay, so the the, um, Samyutta Nikaya in the Pali uh, tradition explains, seeing with correct wisdom is path wisdom together with insight. The mind becomes dispassionate at the moment of the path and is liberated at the moment of the fruit. So last time I talked about the path, the the four paths and the four fruits that they have. Okay, so the path is comparable to the uninterrupted path that we talk about and the fruit to the liberated path. You know, they're very similar that way. And so seeing with correct wisdom is the the path wisdom and and insight. And then the mind becomes completely uninterested in samsara. That's when dispassion arises. And that's when the mind uh, perceives um, nirvana. Okay? So the mind becomes dispassionate when it sees nirvana with correct wisdom and insight. This marks entrance into the supramundane path of stream enterer. So it's called stream enterer because that person is now on the stream, has entered the stream of the Dharma going towards liberation. When the first three fetters, so there there are ten fetters uh, as things are laid out, and the first three view of a a personal identity, doubt, and view of rules and practices have been abandoned, okay? Uh, So when these three have been abandoned, then the fruit of stream enter is attained. So the path wisdom that's abandoning those threes is like the uninterrupted path, and when they have been fully abandoned so that they cannot uh, come back again, then that's the fruit of stream enter. Okay. 
So in this way, dispassion as the path is the condition for liberation as the fruit because you've been now are liberated from those three fetters. Okay? So of the 10 fetters, they're divided into two groups, five which are called the lower fetters, five which are the higher fetters. Okay, so here the first three lower fetters, you have a, of a personal identity, doubt about the teachings, and uh, the wrong view of rules and practices. So having very distorted views about um about what ethical conduct is and how to keep it and what different practices are. Uh, and, you know, so when somebody has all sorts of strange views. It seems like in, in ancient India, I mentioned this before, some, some uh, other ascetics had the view if you jump on the trident and the middle spoke comes out through the crown of your head, you've attained liberation you know, or sitting in the middle of fires or, um, I mean, nowadays, look around us, what people do think that it's, you know, the path to liberation. So these three kinds of, of uh, views are all, and the doubt, you know, is are all abandoned there. So the path and fruit sequence begins with st- stream entry continues with one's returner and non-returner, and culminates in our hotship. Each path is a time of reducing or eliminating fetters, and each fruit is a time of knowing and enjoying the reduction or abandonment of those fetters. The mind is peaceful and delights in its newfound freedom. Okay? So a stream enters, abandon those first three of the lower fetters. A once returner hasn't abandoned any new fetters, but they've greatly lessened sensual desire and malice. Okay. Then a a non-returner has abandoned both sensual desire and malice. And then an arhat, has abandoned the three higher fetters. So uh, attachment to being born in the form realm, attachment to being born in the formless realms, uh, form, formless, well, yeah, realms is good. Um, uh, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. So those are the five higher fetters that, that the arhat has abandoned. So there are two aspects to full liberation. One is freedom from the, from the ignorance and defilements experienced during this lifetime. The mind is now immune to attachment, animosity, and confusion, and any last traces of these poisons have been eliminated so that they can never arise again. So this nirvana is visible here and now. It is called the uh, nirvana with remainder. Okay, so the Buddha in the scriptures often talked about how you can taste the the dharma here and now. It doesn't have to be in some future life or going to some other planet or something like that. So, so that's what this is referring to. Okay, the nirvana with remainder. It's called with remainder because they still 
have the arhats still have the remainder of the polluted body that came into existence due to polluted karma. So that's the remainder. Then when they pass away, they've abandoned the polluted body, and then they have nirvana without, without remainder. Okay. The prasangikas def, uh, define those two terms differently, but what I just said is kind of, uh, you know, most of the, the philosophical uh, tenet systems accept that. Okay, so here's another quote from the Anutta uh, uh, Nikaya. When a person is impassioned with sensual desire, depraved through animosity, bewildered by confusion, overwhelmed and infatuated by sensual desire and animosity and confusion, then he plans for his own harm, for the harm of others, for the harm of both. And he experiences in his, this mind suffering and grief. Okay, so for everybody who thinks that these emotions make you happy because they stick, you stick up for yourself and you get what you want when you have sensual desire, animosity, confusion. Okay, because many people think that, oh yeah, my attachment is going to bring me happy, my animosity, it's going to defend me against other people's harm. My confusion, well, you know, I just had something to drink and my confusion feels pretty good and I don't have to think much about things I don't want to think about. Okay, so if somebody thinks like that, then they're, they wind up planning for their own harm and the harm of other living beings. And they wind up suffering, you know, because they create negative karma and they wind up having a lot of grief and remorse because they look at their actions and just say, Bleh. yeah. So there's, you know, I, I often wonder about that, you know, the people in society uh, who do a lot of harmful actions, how they go to, you know, how they live with themselves. What, what happens when they go to sleep at night? Did they fall asleep or is, are their minds really tumultuous? Yeah. But when sensual desire, animosity, and confusion have been abandoned, he neither plans for his own harm, nor for the harm of others, nor for the harm of both. And he does not experience in his mind suffering and grief. In this way, nirvana is directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, leading onward, and to be personally experienced by the wise. So those, that last bit there is a, um, you find it a lot in, in the scriptures, you know, come and look, yeah. So don't just believe what the Buddha said, come and look. And you'll see that what he's talking about is directly visible, immediate, inviting you to come and see, leading onward and so on. And in fact, uh, some of our friends in Singapore many years ago wrote a song uh, called E Pisico. So um, do we have a, a recording of it here? It's, it's a very nice song, you know? Yeah? Okay, maybe we can find it and play it for people. 
next time, or if you find it now, we could play it now. Okay. So the other aspect of liberation is freedom from rebirth after the breakup of the present body. So that first aspect was in this life, here and now. Then the other is experienced after uh, leaving the body, after death. At our hardship, the peace in the mind is immense, for the mind is no longer controlled by defilements. Our hearts rest with the security that comes from knowing that all future existence in samsara has ceased. So we were talking before about how we want security, we want predictability. Yeah, nirvana brings that kind of security and predictability in the sense that we know that there will no longer be a rebirth in samsara. So it takes a lot of anxiety and fear away. But a bodhisattva doesn't stop there. Okay. So liberation, the fruit of our hardship, is the freedom from all pollutants that comes at the end of this chain of four paths and four fruitions. The path has been completed. There is nothing more to abandon or add. Okay, so then uh, the, that was the tenth point. Then eleventh is liberation is the proximate cause for knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants. So each path which reduces or abandons certain feathers is immediately followed by its own fruit, which enjoys the reduction or abandonment of those feathers. That is followed by a reviewing knowledge. Okay, so you, you have the path that is abandoning or reducing fetters. Then you have the fruit that is the abandonment or reduction of them. And then that's followed by a reviewing knowledge. Okay, and this reviewing knowledge ascertains what, what, what has just occurred. So it reviews the fetters that have been abandoned by that path and those that still remain. The reviewing knowledge after attaining the fruit of our hardship certifies that all fetters, pollutants, and defilements, as well as any underlying tendencies towards them, have been eradicated and that none remain. Okay, so it seems to me that the, well, the path and the fruition yeah, are both done in meditative equipoise, and the reviewing knowledge, yeah, that uh, that sees this, okay, the, as it's it's called the reviewing, the the knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants. So that seems to me like you come out of your meditation at that point, and then you see, oh, I've eliminated or reduced these particular fetters and these ones remain or at our hot ship none of them remain okay so that that would be called that's called a jtope kind of exercise how do you see it um yeah it's what you how do you translate jtope 
um, subs- yeah, subsequent attainment. Yeah, subsequent attainment. Okay. So that's when you come out of the meditation. At the time of the path of arhatship, the four truths are known as they actually are. This knowing eradicates any remaining defilements. At the time of the fruit of arhatship, the remaining defilements have been eradicated and the mind is freed. Following this, the reviewing knowledge arises that understands that this has occurred and that the mind is liberated from defilements. The Buddha describes this sequence. So this is a quote from the Nikaya. He understands as it actually is. This is dukkha. This is the origin of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is the way leading to the cessation of the dukkha, of dukkha. Those are the four truths. These are the pollutants. This is the origin of the pollutants. This is the cessation of the pollutants. This is the way leading to the cessation of the pollutants. When he knows and sees thus, his mind is liberated from the pollutant of sensual desire, the pollutant of existence, and the pollutant of ignorance. So there are the ten fetters, and then there's the three, or sometimes they make four um, fetters. Okay, so sensual desire, existence, that means existence in samsara, the wish for that kind of existence, and the pollutant of ignorance. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. It here means the mind. He understands birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. Okay, so that that passage comes a lot over and over in, in the Pali Canon. An arhat sees the final cessation of dukkha and defilements very clearly, and there is no doubt in his or her mind that this has occurred. Think about that. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah? Now, you know, we're saying sensual desire, malice, um, you know, ignorance, these kinds of things. But what about fear and anxiety and worry that are related to the three poisonous minds but are a little bit different and that really plague people nowadays. Yeah. Two ascertainments are involved in this retrospective cognition. The knowledge of destruction knows that all the fetters have been uprooted and no longer remain. The knowledge of non-arising knows that they can never arise again. So these are the two ascertainments. Knowing that all the fetters have been removed, then knowing that they cannot rise again. Yeah, that must bring a lot of happiness to the mind. Okay. Together, these are called the knowledge and vision of liberation. Arhats experience freedom from defilements 
and enjoy the certitude that defilements can never arise again. This brings an incredible confidence and ease in the mind. Arhats never experience anxiety or uncertainty. Having fully understood that there is no self or anything uh, belonging to a self anywhere at all, they are the masters of their minds. Now, when we hear, you know, understanding there's no self, do we just think, oh, that must feel really good? Or do we go, ah, I don't want to understand that there's no self. Yeah, I want to glorify the self. So see how, how you react. And, you know, and that shows us what we need to work on in our practice. Okay. Or, you know, there's, uh, we understand nothing belonging to a self. And we go, nothing belonging to the self? Oh, I don't want to be like that. I want to accumulate a lot of possessions. I have a body, I have a car, I have a house, I have, you know, skis, I have roller skates, I have bunnies, I have, you know, M&Ms, I have licorice, I have, you know, contact lenses, I have, I have, I want, I want, you know, like saying that there's nothing belonging to the self, not even my body, this belongs to me. Check up. Does your body belong to you? You say, my body. Does your body belong to you? Some people tattoo their name on their arm. They say, yeah, my body belongs to me. See, that's my name right there. Some people put tattoo the name of the people they like on their arm. But I don't think they go, oh, my body belongs to that other person. Okay. While the knowledge and vision of liberation is not always manifest in an arhat's mind, it remains there under the surface and can manifest as soon as she looks at the state of her mind. The Buddha analogized this to someone whose hands and feet have been amputated. Whatever he is doing, his limbs have been cut off, and the instant he turns his mind to it, he knows that this is the case. Yeah. Similarly, someone who has destroyed all pollutants is always free from them, and the instant he looks at his mind, he knows that that is the case. Okay, so that concludes the factors of transcendent dependent origination. So the next section is called karma in samsara and beyond. Okay, So the section that we just went through is talking about the paths of the arhats. The bodhisattva path is different. Okay, Uh, A little bit of it comes in the following section, but more of it comes in volume six. Okay, So karma in samsara and beyond. Karma is of many varieties. Discerning them is helpful to our practice. Of the polluted karma of samsara, 
there is virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral karma. Okay, so the first topic is the polluted karma of samsara, and that has three outlines. So a virtuous polluted karma is created by ordinary beings, everyone who is not an Arya. Okay, so everybody who hasn't realized emptiness directly. The virtuous karma, uh, virtuous polluted karma, ripens as happiness in samsara and does not directly lead to liberation. Okay, it's virtuous, but it doesn't directly lead to liberation. It is of two kinds, as mentioned above, and this refers back to when we were talking about the uh, the link of karma in the uh, in the twelve links. Okay, so the first type of virtuous polluted karma is meritorious karma, and that's created by beings in the desire realm. And it brings a good rebirth or other happy circumstances in the desire realm. Okay. The second one is invariable, or sometimes it's translated as immutable karma. And that's created by beings in the desire form or formless realms. And it creates rebirth in the form or formless realms. Okay. So those two types of virtuous polluted karma. Meritorious and invariable. Okay. Then the other type of polluted karma in samsara is non-virtuous or non-meritorious karma. And uh, when that is created by ordinary beings, it propels unfortunate rebirths and other undesirable events in samsara. That's the non-virtuous karma, like the the ten non-virtues and so on. When created by stream-enterers and once-returners, it does not propel a rebirth. Okay, and you might go, oh, but stream-enterers, they've realized nirvana. You know, they've seen the the transcendental. You mean they can still have non-virtuous karma? Yep. Okay. But their non-virtuous karma does not, is not a propelling karma that causes a rebirth in samsara. Okay, so shravaka aryas, so those are the fen- fundamental vehicle aryas, who are not arhats, may still experience suffering in their lives due to seeds of previously created non-virtuous karma on their mind streams. Okay, so that previously you know, before they uh, are, so these are the Shravaka Arhats who are not, the Shravaka Aryas who are not Arhats, okay? So before they became Aryas, they created non-virtuous karma, okay? And that karma is, uh, they still experience suffering in their lives due to that karma, Okay. Arya bodhisattvas, owing to the power of their wisdom and compassion, do not experience physical or mental suffering. Okay? So, fundamental vehicle Aryas may experience suffering and discomfort. Okay? Bodhisattva Aryas uh, do not. Okay? 
So their um, merit prevents them from experiencing physical pain. Their wisdom prevents them from experiencing mental pain. Okay. Then the, the third type of polluted karma, neutral karma, brings neither happiness nor suffering results. Created by beings in all three realms, it is not powerful enough to propel rebirth in cyclic existence. So to actually have the force to propel a rebirth, that karma has to have an intention behind it that has some oomph, you know. Just sweeping the floor with a kind of a blank mind is not going to have the oomph to cause a rebirth. Okay, now unpolluted karma. So unpolluted karma is created by Aryas who are not Buddhas. It does not propel rebirth in samsara. Together with the latencies of ignorance, it produces the mental bodies of Arya Bodhisattvas and Arhats and leads to liberation and Buddhahood. Okay, mental bodies. So mental bodies um, are hot from, from the viewpoint of the, of the Sanskrit tradition. Yeah, arhats have a mental body. Um, so when they pass away, they abandon the polluted body that arose from samsara karma, uh, but they don't cease to exist. Okay. Some people say arhats, the, the, continuum of consciousness ceases, the arhat ceases. The Mahayana tradition says arhats don't cease, you know, the continuity of consciousness does not cease, but they take an uh, an unpolluted body by the power of the unpolluted karma and the latencies of ignorance. And with that unpolluted body, or with that, 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 sorry, with that mental body, then they uh, meditate on emptiness and they stay absorbed in their meditation on emptiness for a long time, okay? So they have that very subtle mental body, yeah? Arya bodhisattvas uh, can... um, Well, there's different stages uh, depending upon whether people are uh, dull faculty or, or sharp faculty, Arya Bodhisattvas, but uh, in general, okay, and definitely by the eighth ground, they uh, will take an, uh, a mental body. And with that mental body, then they can also manifest and go out and help sentient beings in samsara. So they don't just stay in their meditation on uh, on the ultimate nature. They they go out and do something. Okay. Okay, so together with the latencies of ignorance, um, unpolluted karma produces the mental bodies of Arya Bodhisattvas and Arhats and leads to liberation and Buddhahood. So although virtuous polluted karma is virtuous, it doesn't lead to liberation or Buddhahood directly. But the um, the unpolluted karma created by the Aryas does. 
So Buddhas, then people say, do Buddhas create karma? Buddhas do not create karma, but they engage in spontaneous awakened activities that benefit sentient beings. Okay, so lay is the word for karma, activity, action. And so the Buddhas have trinlay, you know, it's an awakened uh, action, awakened, yeah, that they do uh, to benefit sentient beings. And when we get to volume four, we will, I think, I think it's in volume four, it might be in a later volume, um, about talking about the, the uh, enlightening activity. Um, this brought up a, a doubt in my mind. We talk about the first ground bodhisattvas being able to manifest a hundred bodies. Mm-hmm. Would that be talking about only sharp faculty bodhisattvas on the first ground or? I don't know how that works. I haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Um, what do you say, Geshe-la? Oh, now Geshe-la is looking at his computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when first crown bodhisattvas manifest you know, a hundred bodies. Are those mental bodies or are those emanations or what? Uh, what I remember is that uh, that kind of quality is a common quality for an area, first ground area, mm-hmm. irrespective of their uh, faculty level. And uh, uh, I think it is emanation body, yet uh, not necessarily mental body, emanation body that could emanate in different places where people could touch, see, Mm -hmm. feel like that uh, when they are required. Uh, But wouldn't just suddenly come and surprise us. (laughs) We would come like being there all for a while. And that's how they c- come in and, and help out. So, mm-hmm. But I don't remember much about it. Okay. And when we closely examine our intentions, we may be surprised to find that many of them seek the happiness of only this life. Are you surprised to see that? The appearances of this life are so vivid to our senses that naturally the minds of us ordinary beings gravitate towards them. Even if we believe in future lives, in our daily lives, we often are not mindful that our actions create the causes for our future lives and our experiences in them. This limited perspective obscures the great potential our precious human life, uh, precious human lives provide to gain spiritual realizations. Although we may still create virtuous karma that will result in a fortunate rebirth with a motivation focused on this life, such a motivation impedes us from attaining liberation or full awakening because we're born again in samsara. Okay. 
to expand the intentions beyond our daily actions, it is important to enlarge our worldview to include future lives, liberation, and awakening. Okay. Now the question comes, does that mean that in order to create virtuous karma, we have to believe in rebirth? Uh, the answer to that is no. Okay. People can still, without believing in virtuous karma, create good, you know, uh, without believing in rebirth, they can still create virtuous karma. Okay. And you can, you know, we can see that all around when people are generous, when they're kind, when they practice forgiveness and fortitude and so on. Okay. Okay, all ordinary beings, including those from the supreme Dharma stage of the path of liberation of all three vehicles downwards. Okay, so you become an Arya at the path of seeing. So the path previous to the path of seeing is the path of liberation. Even when you're in the highest stage of that, called the supreme Dharma, okay, in any of the three vehicles, they hear Shravaka vehicle, solitary realizer, or Mahayana vehicles, um, all of those beings and everybody below them, they accumulate karma that propels rebirth in samsara under the influence of ignorance and the view of a personal identity. Yeah? So those people on the path of preparation have a a reliable cognizer of emptiness. It's not a direct one. It's not a non-conceptual one. It's a conceptual one. But they're pretty high on, you know, on the path to have even that, some kind of realization of of emptiness. But even that, you don't create the unpolluted karma that leads directly to liberation and awakening. Their motivation that sees the disadvantages of samsara and genuinely aspire for liberation and virtuous karma similar to the wisdom analyzing selflessness, okay, are contrary to the first link ignorance and are remedies for the craving of rebirth. They lead to the eradication of craving and the attainment of the Arya path. And in this sense, they are not actual true origins. However, since they are similar to true origins in that they are not free from grasping true existence, this karma is included under true origins. Okay, so the, the um, polluted karma, uh, even from... Arya, from bodhisattvas who are not Aryas on the path of preparation, okay, they see the disadvantages of samsara, they aspire for liberation, okay, and they have, they create virtuous karma that's similar to the wisdom analyzing selflessness because they have uh, those, the inferential realization of emptiness, Okay, and all of that is contrary to the first link ignorance 
and it represents crave. It, it um, is a remedy for craving. Okay, and it leads to the eradication of craving and the attainment of the Arya path. Okay, so in that sense, that kind of very strong virtuous karma is not an actual true origin. Yeah, because it's leading you to the Arya path. But they, since they are similar, the, those karmas are similar to true origins in that they are created under the influence of grasping at true existence, those kind of karmas are included under true origins. Okay, so the compendium of determination says, by nature they are not directed towards rebirth in, in samsara. However, they approximate the physical, mental, and verbal good conduct that leads to rebirth. Consequently, you should understand that on this account, they are included under the truth of the origin. Okay, which is polluted, samsaric. Lots of times when we hear this for the first time, we go, what? It sounds like then it's impossible to ever attain, you know, liberation and enlightenment. Antipathy towards all form of forms of dukkha, sincere aspiration to attain liberation, bodhicitta, and the mind similar to the correct view are excellent steps along the path. But to create unpolluted karma that leads directly to liberation and awakening, we must generate the Arya path by realizing emptiness directly and non-conceptually. Only then do our actions become unpolluted and direct causes for liberation. For us ordinary beings, the only karma we create that is not typical true origins of dukkha are actions depending on the power of the field, that is, by interaction with holy objects, places, and people. Okay. So, hmm, everything else I do with a good intention doesn't create the, cause, the direct cause for liberation and awakening. Okay. But the only karma we create that is not typical true origins of dukkha are those that are created in relationship to holy objects, holy places, and holy people. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Yeah. Like as if the object has some inherent capacity so that when we interact with it, we, you know, put some some virtuous seeds on our own mind that will lead uh, directly, you know, to, to liberation. And it doesn't even mention that we have to have the motivation for it. Okay. So it sounds funny when you first hear it. So here's what Tsongkhapa says. You might not have acquired through extensive meditative analysis of the faults of cyclic existence the remedy that eradicates the craving for the wonders of cyclic existence. You might also not have used discerning wisdom to properly analyze the meaning of selflessness 
And you might not have become habituated to the two bodhicittas, conventional and ultimate, in which case your virtuous activities, with some exceptions on account of the field's power, so the field means the holy field, yeah, uh, so all, in which case your virtuous activities, with some exceptions on account of the field's power, would constitute typical origins of dukkha and hence would fuel the process of cyclic existence. Okay. I remember when His Holiness taught this in South India and we bumped into you uh, that day. Do you remember that? And, uh, and we kept asking you about this. Like, how, how is that possible? How does that work? Keshila, we don't understand. You know, and then we went. I think we went to see Geshe Tafke, didn't we? Yeah. So, nevertheless, contact with holy objects creates seeds of powerful virtuous karma. In letter to a friend, Nagarjuna says that even if somebody sees the form of the Tathagata in a mural and reacts to it with an afflicted attitude, he still creates karma to have visions of Buddhas and Buddha lands in the future. Hmm, that sounds like maybe you spend all day just looking at pictures of bodhisattvas and murals, and it's going to be better than, you know, doing your dharma practice. Yeah, because look at the karma you create by looking at the Buddha. It sounds like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's not like that. <laughs> but it sounds like it. <laughs> Buddhas and bodhisattvas are such powerful fields for accumulating merit because they have dedicated their lives to benefiting sentient beings for as long as samsara endures. Due to the incredible virtue of their aspirations, any contact with them becomes virtuous in the long term. Okay, so we may have a terrible intention, but due to their virtue and their aspirations to become fully awakened for our benefit, yeah, that is what makes our connection with them uh, something positive that that helps us on the path, okay? Because of their attitude. Whereas ordinary beings, you know, uh, we look at their picture on a mural. Uh, if we go, oh, what a horrible looking thing that is. Ordinary beings, they don't have the aspiration to benefit us and attain enlightenment for our benefit. So there's, you know, there's not going to be any benefit arising from that. But due to the power of the practice of the bodhisattvas and their attainments, yeah, then that works. This is uh, very much uh, in connection with uh, the stanza that we come across in the homage to Buddha Shakyamuni, mm-hmm. where uh, the first three stanzas deals with his body speech quality body qualities mm-hmm. 
which we do not emphasize as much because it doesn't need to be, because there is much greater quality than that. And from the fourth stanza, uh, one stanza each for the three jewels, mm-hmm. in which the first one is about Buddha, where uh, just as we all recite every day, great compassionate protector, his compassion, mm-hmm. all-knowing teacher, his knowledge, filled of merit and good qualities, vast as an ocean. Yeah. So that's another way how Buddhas, though they may not uh, pull out, mm-hmm. pull, pull off the weeds within us, yet mm-hmm. they have accumulated so much merit and have dedicated solely for the benefit of others that uh, such things as contact, mm-hmm. even with an ill intention, uh, can result in positive uh, positive states. Yeah. And I remember in uh, I was I was also surprised, and I raised this with Gishelo Sangla on a walk also, mm-hmm. where it says, when somebody has accumulated very strong marriage, mm-hmm. then the result will be dependent on how you or where uh, to what end do you dedicate it. So there was an account of someone accumulating great merit, like we would try to do with all the intentions of all there. But then once the merit is created, then you dedicate it something to harm someone. And it results in that. Mm-hmm. It's like the money you have uh, acquired with all your hardship. Mm-hmm. Now it's in your hand where you dedicate it. Mm-hmm. And that's where it will be spent. Even if the quality was good, the, the quality or the merit was strong and powerful. So that this just reminded me of yeah. this. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And that explains, because there's always a story about Milarepa, who um, had such strong meditation, and he killed 35 human beings before he, he met the Dharma. And we wonder, how could somebody like Milarepa, with very strong concentration, turn around and do that? So that's the same thing because of the power of the intention there and how he dedicated whatever merit from concentration. Uh, Likewise, in the story about Angulimala, Uh I don't know how true is that in terms of original source, but in the movie we see how even after having created so much negative karma, Mm -hmm. when he was so intent and uh, willing to be of help to them, to, to a laboring mother mm-hmm. and then he runs to Buddha and asks him and you make, dedicate your merit uh, to her relief and he says there is no merit I have accumulated no no but since you uh, have become ordained and from then on you have been so pure and you have that med- dedication that merit and that is your, your own earning now it's in your hands to dedicate mm-hmm. uh, to whatever end and you can dedicate that towards the towards the end towards that end of relief to the laboring mother, uh, uh, laboring women, and he does that, and the mother delivers the baby without further pain like that. Yeah. So, uh, so it is. It's, it's it's very similar. But this other one that I discussed with Gishe Lopsanda, I came across a text, mm-hmm. and I was wondering how could this happen. 
mm. but in a way in it is still within the uh, realm of dependent origin you earned good quality good merit and then you dedicate it that conditioned in how, how it uh, results mm. so the moral of the story is dedicated for something good not for <laughs> For some harmful result, yeah. They have dedicated for it's for the good of others. Yeah, some to the extent that may the justice we usually know of our location where he dedicated his name mm-hmm. uh, so much uh, by uh, backed by his merits uh, so much that anyone who hears it says it. Yeah. may benefit from it and yeah. that's calling on the power of his merit mm-hmm. and dedicating it in that way yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah. there's uh, a dedication verse may, may anybody who sees, hears you know, speaks or talks you know, talks to me yeah, be liberated Backed up by actual merit. strength of merit. Yeah. 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 And they say that's the difference between prayers and dedication. Prayer dedication is you've created merit and you're steering how you want it to ripen. As, um, prayers are, you know, you're just having aspirations. You don't have the merit to, that you're dedicating to back it up. Okay. Okay. Due to the incredible virtue of their aspirations, any contact with them becomes virtuous in the long term. When we make offerings or prostrations to them, bodhisattvas rejoice in our virtue and dedicate their merit to be able to benefit us. Even when people harm them, bodhisattvas pray to be able to teach them the Dharma and lead them to awakening. Yeah, that's a good practice for us, isn't it? Every time somebody says something we don't like to hear, we dedicate for their awakening. Yeah, we pray to be able to teach them the Dharma and lead them to awakening. Yeah. Although creating merit with holy objects is important, it is not sufficient for the attainment of spiritual realizations. We must cultivate all the steps on the path, the three higher trainings, the three principal aspects of the path, and the path of tantrayana to gain full awakening. So, yeah, the holy object can only do so much. Yeah. We can have create a lot of good karma in relation to the ship to them, but there's no shortcuts. Yeah, we still have to transform our own mind. Okay, so that uh, finishes chapter ten, and we will start on chapter eleven next time. And if you look at the photograph of the uh, opposite, 
Try and guess who those people are. <laughs> okay. You have the back of their heads. Yeah. After, after you live in a place, sometime you know the back of everybody's head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, so it's late. We won't have any Q&A right now. <laughs>